the cross where my Savior Let's try that again. cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin, Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in, glory to his name, glory to his name, glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Well, those four guys had to sing with me. Uh, we were unable to, our piano player for that song didn't, wasn't able to be here tonight, so Josh went ahead and played, and I just jumped in and sang the lead. And uh, so I messed it up right off the bat, didn't I? All right. Well, they did a great job, at least. Praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I'm going to begin reading there again as we're dealing with this topic of Consider Stephen. And over the last few weeks, we've noted his qualifications, his participation, his generation, his proclamation, and his tribulation. Isn't that something? That sounds like a message, doesn't it? And today we're going to talk about his salvation. Let's go ahead and begin reading here again as we just familiarize ourselves just a little bit once again with Stephen, chapter 7, verse 54, right to the end of the chapter. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, we've been noting this man, a very unusual man, a very unique man, and a very godly man. And so as we've considered him in so many different aspects and so many different ways, i got to believe that it's been a blessing and a help to you just like it's been to myself. Tonight, we want to consider, though, his salvation. 
And so I want to take just a few minutes and look at that and from three perspectives. I want to consider the aspect of the truth we learn, the truth we live, and the truth we love. And so let's go ahead and take a moment. We'll have a word of prayer. Get right into things tonight. Father, we love you. Thank you again for this opportunity that we have to gather here tonight. Lord, thank you for these that are so faithful to be in your house. And Lord, again, uh, I do realize, Lord, that uh, just a number of folks aren't feeling well. But Lord, we know that you're the great physician. So Lord, intercede on their behalf. But Lord, tonight for we who are gathered here, and Lord, we're just asking that, Lord, you would speak to us in a mighty way. May your still small voice truly come alongside us. And may we hear the thunder of your voice in our hearts. Lord, may your word just truly prick our hearts and also, Father, pinpoint our needs. And Lord, help us, Father, to leave here, Father, encouraged by your blessed book and your spirit. We need you, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, first of all, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56, we read that it says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So Stephen is very aware that the Lord Jesus Christ is standing. Very aware of this indeed. And we know that, um, you know, it would be nice to think, I think if you're like myself, it'd be wonderful to believe that our homecoming is going to bring Christ to his feet. But that's not what this passage is teaching. The fact that Christ stood for Stephen in no way sets a precedence for all Christianity for the last 2,000 years. Now, that brings us to the truth we learn then. I mean, if that's not the case, then what are we to learn from it then? Well, in the book of Hebrews, notice if you will, over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Notice it says in that particular passage that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Again, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice again, he's seated or set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now in, in his message, Stephen quoted Isaiah 66.1. And that particular passage states, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So he's seated in that passage. But by the time Stephen's discourse has ended, he's standing. Now, the Bible tells us that God's no respecter of persons. And, and I mean, we have no reason to doubt that at all. Seeing he stood up for Stephen, then it would seem natural that he would stand up for you. He'd stand up for me. He'd stand up for all of us, right? It does seem natural. Now, that may be a wonderful thought, but it's really rather impractical if you think about it. I mean, how many saints die each day? How many saints die each hour? How many saints die each minute? The truth is that if Jesus were to, to, uh, if, if, if Jesus were to stand for every single saint that died, he would never be seated. I mean, really, would he? I mean, he'd be standing in the throne, not seated on the throne. Here's what we see, though. The indication is that 
if the Jews had received the preaching of Stephen, you know, the preaching concerning their role and responsibility about the the crucified Christ, the fact that they themselves were the, the responsible party, that they crucified him, that they killed him, that they are the ones that said, crucify him, crucify him, that he was Messiah, that he was the promised seed, that he was indeed the anointed one. If they'd have understood his preaching and took full responsibility, then Jesus would have stepped down. He would have returned to earth and established his millennial kingdom on the spot. That's what we see. Now, all the Old Testament prophecies were in place at this point. I mean, the Jews were in their homeland, so there's no need to gather them. The Antichrist was in the pit. One would say, well, who is that? I believe it's Judas. The right nation was in power, Rome. Everything was in place. Now, again, it's important to realize that this is the Old Testament so to speak. I mean, we've just gotten into the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament doesn't even kick off till Jesus Christ sheds His precious blood. Till He dies. So we're still in the Old Testament all the way through Matthew. Till we get almost to chapter what? 27? So that's still Old Testament because the death of the testator has yet to take place according to Hebrews. So... If they had received the message, then what basically would have happened is Daniel's 70th week would have gone into effect. We know that's a seven-year period. It's called the tribulation period. Not one of the Old Testament verses, not one of the prophecies would have been unfulfilled at that very point. And Christ could have easily returned at that time. And He would not have violated any scripture. Because remember, it cannot be forgotten that the New Testament had not even been written yet. So therefore, there's no prophecy after the Old Testament. So everything's in place. Everything's ready. So when Jesus is standing, He's preparing to take His place on the throne of David. He's preparing to kick off that Daniel 70th week and move forward with the plan. Right, amen. That's why He's standing. But may I say... I would love to think that when I die, he's specifically going to say, oh, it's so good to see you here, Mark. But the truth is, I'll wake up in his arms. He doesn't have to come to me. I'll go to him. From this passage and others also, we learned that Israel had gotten three chances to accept the Messiah. We know that John the Baptist preached him. And what did they do to John? They killed him. We know that Jesus Christ preached the truth. What did they do to him? Killed him. And now Stephen goes before the council. He says, you got one more chance. You got two strikes against you. Will you accept responsibility? Will you admit who Jesus really was? Will you allow him to be Messiah and Savior in your life and in your nation? But you rejected him the third time now. Once under John the Baptist. Once, Jesus Christ, and once, under Stephen, three strikes, you're out. And from that point on, God turns His attention to the Gentiles. Again, we note in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, we see Philip 
And Philip has experienced a tremendous revival in Samaria. I mean, a tremendous revival. Well, Samaria, of course, was the byproduct of the Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. And what we have, basically, is we have Jews and Samaritans, uh, Jews and, and Assyrians coming together, creating, basically, a race called Samaritans. Half Jew, half Gentile. So now we have Philip who's preaching in this Samaria where there's these half Jew and half Gentile. Of course, remember now, there's a transition taking place. Now that the Jew has rejected Jesus Christ, the Jew has rejected John the Baptist, and now the Jew has rejected even Stephen in the message. Three strikes, you're out. Now, of course, we see that we're going to transition from Jew to Gentile in the book of Acts, and this is our first step. We see half Jew, half Gentile being addressed and preached to. Then we find Saul, who would later be called Paul. We know that his salvation takes place on the Damascus Road. Of course, he would ultimately become the apostle the Bible calls him to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, also we recognize the fact that Peter, chapter 10 of Acts, we note that Peter uses those keys that he was given, the keys of the kingdom, to unlock the door of salvation to the Gentiles by preaching to Cornelius in his household. We see our Gentiles, Gentiles being saved now. We see Gentiles being filled with the Holy Ghost. We know even Gentiles speaking in tongues. By the way, don't get sidetracked by that because there was a Jew around when they did it. Because the Jew requires a sign, not a Gentile. See, if you're looking for signs today, you're the wrong race. The fact is, is that the Jew will require a sign just like they always have. And one day when Jesus Christ prepares to return, he gathers all those people of Israel back into their homeland. When he begins to work and deal with them again, guess what they will see? Miracles. Amen. That's right. But also realize this. Because they depend so awfully much on miracles, so will Antichrist perform miracles. And so they will be deceived like the world will be deceived because if anybody can heal the sick, we're certainly going to believe they're supernatural. So now, after this takes place, Gentiles receive the Holy Ghost and they're just like the Jews were. Basically, we know the Bible teaches that the Jew and the Gentile become one in Christ Jesus. And through the book of Acts, we have a transition that takes place. We see that we begin, God begins dealing purely and solely with the Jew, ends up dealing with the Gentile. A transition takes place. That's why the book of Acts is so awfully confusing to people. Because there's a transition taking place. That transition didn't take place overnight. That transition took place over time. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, it says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Jesus had been waiting on the brink of heaven, standing in hopes that he would be received and therefore proceed to his rightful place on the throne of David. But instead they crucified him. They killed him. Stephen, that is. They martyred him. 
Stephen is ushered into the very presence of the Lord. You know what? That's exactly what will happen to us. When we die, we'll be taken right into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's encouraging. I don't know about you. And we have a number of people that are on the edge or the brink of eternity right now. You know, as a pastor, it's not easy to go into a, 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 a hospital room or possibly a nursing home or some hospice care and look face to face with somebody that you've cared about and you've loved and that you've prayed over to see them dying. It's not easy, but let me tell you, it's a lot easier than thinking they're going to die and go to hell. And I want to encourage you to do something in your own life. If you have a family member or a friend that you know doesn't know Christ, let me tell you something. Tomorrow they could be in that spot and you'll regret the day. You'll rue the day that you passed on an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. We better tell them while we can. You better tell them while you can. You say, well, the ramifications might be great. Let me tell you something. If they don't have an opportunity to be conscious, if they're not, there's not an opportunity to talk to them while they have their faculties, let me tell you, you'll regret that. Their friendship or their, their, their likability toward you, their, their heart toward you and their, their acceptance of you will mean nothing to you if in your heart you know they're in hell. You would have much rather been their enemy telling them the truth than be their friend sending them to hell. But see, we believe there's a heaven. And we believe there's a hell. We can't forget that. Because if we do, they have no hope. So the Christ that Stephen counted on so counted so precious in his life. The Savior that he preached and the Savior that he promoted so vigorously was the very Christ that received him unto himself in that passage. The truth we learn. But then consider the truth we live. If Stephen had any regrets about the sacrifice that he was making, I guarantee you this, without a shadow of a doubt, there wasn't one hardship, trial, or sacrifice that he regretted now as he faithfully rested in the bosom of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There wasn't one. He wasn't regretting anything now. Now that he was in the very presence of the Lord, now that heaven was in plain sight, now that the angelic host could be heard with his own ears, oh, he was glad that he had endured such light affliction, which was but for a moment, and worked for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, there are no regrets now. I share the story often, and I'm going to do it anyway, and you probably just heard it a month or so ago, but I love the story of William Borden. And I, I, I still remember, uh, as I'm sharing it the last time, somebody hit the punchline before I could even get there. In 1904, of course, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. And he was the heir to that Borden Dairy Estate. You know how big that was. And it was even popular in the 1900s. And I guess it might even be around today. Borden Dairy. He was already a millionaire. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. Sounds like a pretty good, pretty good deal 
as the young man traveled through Asia, as he went through the Middle East, as he observed Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Man, God got a hold of his heart, and finally there came a point where he even wrote home saying, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. Thine eye affecteth thine heart. And that's exactly what happened to William Borden. You know, that's why it's important that your children get involved in the bus ministry. That's why it's important that they deal with these bus children. That's why it's important they deal with the Sunday school kids. That's why it's important that they go out knocking doors and soul winning so that they can see the carnage of sin and also see the very need to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Borden, after writing home, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. And you know, Borden never did hold anything back. Of course, during his college years at Yale University, he became a pillar in the Christian community. I mean, he was all in. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength simply said this, quote, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. A young man writing that. You think he understood what temptation was? Sure he did. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that would transform campus life. The little group gave birth to a movement that literally spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, there were 150 freshmen that were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time he was a senior, there were 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students. 1,000 of the 1,300 students were meeting in such groups just like that. Isn't that amazing? I think we'd call that revival today. Borden also strategized with his fellow Christians. He, he, he got along with some of them and he tried to figure out how, how they could make sure everybody on campus heard the gospel. And then also as a result of some of his journeys down into the d- downtown streets of New Haven, he found that he had a tremendous passion to reach them as well. And all along, his passion for missions continued to grow, continued to grow. Once he narrowed his missionary call to the Kinsu people in China. And Borden never wavered. I mean, he was convinced. Upon graduating from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No retreats. Saying, I'm not turning back for nothing. No retreats. And so in keeping with that commitment, Borden turned down several high-paying job offers. What a stupid young man. That's what we would think most of the time. You got a good job offer, you're nuts, kid. I mean, obviously God's in it. Sorry, I just thought I'd throw that in. I'm a little passionate about those things too. I hope you are as well. So after graduating... He immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic. Again, he was going to deal with Muslims in China, so he thought, I'd better figure it out now. So he went to Egypt. But while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. 
Spinal meningitis is a horrible disease. It's a horrible problem. Even today in our present culture, with all the medical knowledge we know, it can truly bring a person to their knees and even to death. But in those days, it was even more of a problem. Within a month, one month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written, no regrets. See, William Borden had no regrets, and the truth is, neither should we. How sad would it be to believe that someone would have regrets living for Christ. That's kind of sad to think about, isn't it? But it still seems that believers from Christ's day till now regret not being able to participate in worldly fanfare and fleshly folly. Young people, one of the greatest temptations you're going to have is to join the world and be a part of that because you feel you're missing out on all the fun. child of God today can be found longing for the world, it seems. The very world that they were delivered from. We say, I can never regret living for God. I can never regret giving my life for the Master. But if we're not careful, we still turn around and we somewhat wish we could watch a sensual show or attend a worldly event. Isn't that, in essence, regret? What if, like Stephen or William Borden, we were to be called upon to give our lives right now? Would we have regret? I mean, what if we had to have kept ourselves pure till marriage only to find that we would never be married? Would we regret it? What if we denied the advances of a coworker only to find that our spouse had already broken their vows and secretly filed for divorce? Would we regret being pure and turning down those advances? Would we regret doing right or rejoice that we were faithful to the very end? Would we do that? See, no matter what our response is, there's one thing that I am confident and I can say without doubt, you will never regret living your life for God in the next life. That's the one thing I know for a fact. When the shadow of death embraces you and in that, I mean, in that very moment when you are standing in his majestic presence, you'll have no regrets living a godly, separated, sanctified, consecrated life on behalf of Jesus Christ. You will never regret that. In this life, you may be tempted to regret that. The world is so bright and it seems so wonderful and the flesh seems to desire so many things and we are so tempted to regret giving ourselves to Christ and fully surrendering to Him. But I promise you this, when we open our eyes in the very presence of that holy, righteous God who not only created the universe but also saved our wretched souls, we'll have no regret in that day. 
But you have to believe that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, though, to not have regret or to actually mean what I just said. I'm convinced we really don't believe what we say we do many times. I'm convinced that we live with all these doubts and we're so afraid to tell someone about them. So we just go along acting as though we believe exactly what everybody else we think believes. I'm concerned that our relationship with Christ isn't what other people think it is. It's what we want them to believe it is. And I just want to encourage you to be honest with yourself about your walk with God. If you doubt there's a creator, you need to be honest with the creator. And if you doubt or wonder that if there's a heaven, then you need to tell him, I'm struggling with a heaven. You say, but if I do that, then I don't mean I'm not saved. Let's not worry about that right now. Let's just worry about being honest with God. Because, you know, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Wouldn't it be sad to cover up your fears, your concerns, your doubts, only to find out that indeed you are in hell now? I'd rather face it now while I can. And then one day get to heaven and know, avoided that one. So we noted the truth, we learned. We noted the truth, we live. But now let's just take a moment and consider the truth we love. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 1, turn there if you would, it's a great passage. What a wonderful passage it is. You might even be able to quote it. I'm going to turn to it just to make sure I don't mess it up. Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. The Bible says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Jesus was Stephen's light. Jesus was Stephen's salvation. I mean, that's obvious because it was only Christ that could cause him to finally take his place and boldly proclaim the truth and even yield to stoning. I mean, he didn't fight the crowd. He didn't scream for mercy. He didn't beg to be let off the hook. No, he just submitted and surrendered to it and he trusted God with his life. The Lord is my light and my salvation, Stephen said. And so he could endure the hardships of his martyrdom. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on none other but the Savior. He saw no one. He saw nothing else but Jesus Christ. And someone would say, well, that's a little selfish. What about others in his life? What about the church? What about the ministry? What about his family? Hey, all he could see was Jesus Christ. And I tell you this. God never, ever, ever asked you to make a choice between your family and the ministry. Never happens. Quit pretending it does. It doesn't happen. He never asked you to do that. And he never asked Stephen to do that. He just asked Stephen to keep his eyes on him. And that's exactly what you and I ought to be doing. We ought to keep our eyes on Him. The moment we get our eyes off of Him, that's when the hurt comes. That's when the heartache's there. That's when we get off track. And that's when all of a sudden the world's problems and the weight of the circumstances of our life will bury us. 
John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You and I have only one hope in this life. The truth, Jesus Christ. That's it. If you're hoping in family, you're hoping in friends, you're hoping in a job, you're hoping in your finances, you're hoping in the wrong thing. You could lose it like that. He alone, Jesus Christ, is our light and salvation. He alone is the truth, and He is the way, and He is the life. There can be no mistaking it. Life lived in our own strength and ability will only yield futility and frustration. That's all it yields. Oh, there'll be seasons of what we would call success, as we spoke about this last week, Sunday night, but there will not be good success. There may be success apart from God, but if it's not success as a result of God, it is temporary, futile, and frustration. It's frustrating and very short-lived, obviously. I put my name next to a quote, obviously, some time ago. But as I look at it, I wonder if I hadn't read it somewhere and just took it as my own. Honestly, it's just too good to be mine. And I do believe I read it somewhere. And now I can't remember where. To succeed without Christ is the greatest of all failures. i got to believe somebody else. I'm thinking maybe it was one of those men or women of prayer that I was reading after at some point. I mean, think about that. To succeed without Christ is the greatest of all failures. Boy, if believers really believe that, if we bought into that, if we could really wrap our minds around that, then every, all these things that we call earthly successes would not so enamor us. We wouldn't be so, wow, I wish I was like them. I wish I had what they have. If we really understood that success without Christ is the greatest of all failures. See, the nature of our business is eternal, and nothing eternal can be gained by the flesh. Nothing. 1 Peter 1.24 says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. The Bible tells us that the Lord is not only our light and salvation, but He's our strength as well. He goes on to say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Boy, He supplies our needs. He provides us and gives us the very strength we need. We could talk about those three Hebrew children and how the edict had been passed. The music was to be played, and as soon as the music was played, they were to bow down. Worship the image. But those Hebrew children weren't like most young men today, were they? They had dreams and they had visions of finding love and sharing a fruitful relationship together and even having children and family. I'm sure they did. I mean, they saw themselves as those with a, their whole life ahead of them. But without warning, just like that, an edict was passed, decreed, and suddenly 
They're confronted with a dilemma that would likely crush the majority of believers. I wouldn't want to be put in this spot. I wouldn't want to be tested like that. I don't know that I'd pass the test, to be frank with you. I'd have to be put there before I could really tell you for sure. I'd like to believe I would have chose like they chose. I'd like to believe I would have stood like they stood. They're thrust right into the teeth of a diabolical plan to abolish any reference of faith in the kingdom. I mean, no mention of this faith. No mention of God. I am God. I am your leader, Nebuchadnezzar said. Excuse me, at that point it was Cyrus. I mean, at that point it was a different leader. Wasn't simply a lifestyle for them, though, was it? It was a long standing principle in their life. And that's what they were being asked to give up a principle, not a preference. And not only that, they were not being just asked to give up a principle. In reality, they were asked to, be, to give up a person. See, the very person that would ultimately join them in the midst of the trial by fire was the very one that they would have had to have denied. These guys were in love with the truth, man. They loved the truth. And they, they stood the test. They didn't bow. They kept standing. And their love for a person, that person being God, kept them on their feet. It provided them with the supernatural strength and courage that was required to overcome this obstacle in their life, this temptation they faced. You know, our salvation is a person, not an event. I said a prayer, but if you didn't meet a person, you're lost. Our salvation is not an event, it is a person. Our strength is a person, not an attribute. I've got plenty of strength. No, no, you, you may have physical strength, but spiritual strength is a person, Jesus Christ. Everything in the Christian life is a person. And that's the thing that we miss so often. Let's develop character. You know, what we need to do is know Christ and have more Christ in us. And we'll choose like Christ chooses. We'll live like Christ lives. We'll love like Christ loves. It's a person. What enabled Stephen to endure the biting, the cursing, the mocking, and even the prospect of stoning was the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he succeeded. That's why he stood. And that's why he submitted to stoning. Don't be fooled into substituting work for worship or activity for adoration. Don't let that happen in your life. Choose Christ. Know Him. Learn of Him. 
And in doing so, you become like him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. We need to learn of him. That's the answer to every issue in our life, truly. Learn of him. Other things will fall into place. Practical things will find their way into our life, without a doubt. We have gotten away from the simplicity of Christ. We've complicated it with so many choices. Choose Him and other things will fall into place. The truth we learn, the truth we live, and the truth we love. Boy, Stephen knew something about the Savior. And so do we. We need to know something about Him too. Father, we come to You. Thank You again, Lord, for the privilege that we have to gather here tonight and 